0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gurra. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Good morning, everyone. Bloomberg Surveillance. David Gura. And Tom Keene in New York. We're uh, going to go to a most important interview. Good morning to all of you of Global Wall Street. And, David, this really frames out the struggle for all of investment, conservative, boring mutual fund managers, everyone in every flavor of hedge fund. And you see it when I quote the VIX 10.71. Or We look at foreign exchange VIX. We look at fixed income volatility, the dampening and quiet of the market is challenging for everyone in conversations at Cantor Fitzgerald on September eleventh in that charity event. You talk to the people in the trenches. and I'll tell you, David, it's it's uh, a trade to trade of quiet through two thousand and seventeen.
1: Uh, Hugh Henry joins us now uh, from our studios uh, in London. He, uh, The manager of Eclectica Asset Management announced uh, in a letter yesterday that that fund closing uh, after 15 years. Great to have you with us here uh, on Bloomberg Surveillance. Appreciate the time uh, this morning. Let's just start with the motivations for for doing this, the the complexity, the global complexity that led you to make this decision, uh, and tell your investors this
2: yesterday. Mm. Well, there was absolutely no complexity. Um, I'd like to think I've, <laughs> in my life I've done things differently. Uh. You know, I don't want to sound like Frank Sinatra. Um, but um, I, my message is I, I died in, in active combat, if you will. Uh. I, I died having a go. Um, I think what we've seen, uh, a lot of my contemporaries, like we're rich, we're tired, we're fed up. And just kind of, you know, slipped out the back door. I wanted to go out (laughs) with a bang, if you will, and I wanted to go out saying, I see the world, it's huge. I have these trades, I'm here. And let me, I think you're missing this. Let's have this dialogue. Um, Just the economics, and there's nothing complex. Yeah, um, economics were against me.
0: Yeah, Hugh, good morning. Wonderful for you to come on with us. Global Wall Street, listening to you now across all of our radio. You said to Lionel Barber's rag, five years ago. We're harshly disciplined by market trends. You will never see us pursue a homegrown idea uh, to the detriment of the prevailing trend. The trend hasn't been there with a dampened vol across all asset classes. Are you a victim of the dampening of Janet Yellen, John Carney, Mr. Kuroda, and Mr. Draghi?
2: Um, Far from me to to play my violin and claim to be uh, a victim. Um, But certainly I I believe there are wider forces uh, to play because this is not a story about individuals. This is a genetic story about uh, a a, a great group of some of the most provocative um, and fantastic brains in the world who as a group since 2012 really have consistently failed to produce returns.
0: Well, uh, but I made the key distinction this morning, Hugh, and I think this is critically important in the mathematics of failure. You didn't blow up. I mean, you're down 9% this year. I get that. But you didn't blow up. This is a sequence of, frankly, good subpar returns. Mm -hmm. How do we end that and get back to alpha generation or alpha loss? I mean, somebody loses. But how do we get back to so-called normal, where the game is fair when you wake up in the morning.
2: Well, I'm not arguing that the game is unfair. I would actually say that Global uh, Macro enjoyed a moment in time which um, where the, the fortunes and, and the great performance of the protagonists perhaps owed much to the context. I believe that you know, we had that inflation drama in the 1970s, and for three, at least three decades, if not 40 years, uh, it remained long in the, the market memory, if you will, that we could return to such an environment. It was also there with the Fed. I mean, remember, as early as um, back in you know, the taper tantrum of 2013, the Fed was proposing to tighten its policy with the national unemployment rate at 7.5% and with no credible sign of inflation. We've just Mm. been on this high alert. Now the the result of that has been that for decades the real return on US treasury bonds were very very high and the macro model was simple you come in, you leverage those returns you get a very high risk adjusted return, it pays for the commercial cost of running the business and it pays for taking, um, like buying convexity via puts on fixed income or equity markets and periodically they go in your favour and everyone thinks you're a rock star. Mm. Now quantitative of easing now, I estimate that 10-year real treasury bond yields are 0.3%. So even leveraging that, uh, which I right. would advise because they seem expensive, right. you know.
0: Well, that's where we are. When do you envision the young kids, CFAs, when do they get to play again? Because we've seen X number of years of this dampened idea. When does the game get fun
2: again? Well, the, the, the game gets, and you know, i, I the game will get fun again, but I think I always look at the irony and the paradox of of the path that the world t- chooses to take. Um, it will become relevant again because there will mm-hmm. be a moment when people will call upon. Um, diversifying assets. They will discover to their great horror that their U.S. treasuries are not doing the job. Um, And so they'll be calling upon global macro, but they'll be looking at their allocation. They'll be saying we used to say, where are all the customers yachts? We'll be saying, where are all the macro managers? Now you might retort on the yachts, but you know. (laughs) The, we're we de-scaling a uh, uh, portfolio diversifying uh, subsector. Yeah, Hugh,
0: don't be a stranger when you're in New York. When you take the Concord, or, Hugh's the only one still, still taking the, the Concord. Concord. Okay. <laughs> uh, when, Hugh, when you take the Concord <laughs> over your private Stream, please stop by in New York. We'd love to talk Thank to you me, for a longer yeah. conversation or when we're in London. Mr. Hendry, uh, shutting down his hedge fund uh, yesterday, really glo- major global news for global Wall Street, David. I, I really can't convey enough he didn't blow up. That's the news here. He didn't blow up. It was just the dampening. I can honestly say I've never seen this,
1: David. There you go. Invoking Frank Sinatra. Regrets, I've had a few. Uh, Hugh Hendry, great yeah. to speak with him exclusively here on Bloomberg this morning on the heels of that uh, news. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. David Gurra and Tom Keene in New York, coast to coast and worldwide. Ben Cardin has been in the U.S. Senate since 2007. Before that, he represented the 3rd District in Maryland in the U.S. House of Representatives. He is now the ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He joins us now on our phone lines on a day when we are keenly focused on what's happening in the Pacific. Of course, another, nuclear, uh, sorry, another missile test last, last night by North Korea, an intermediate-range ballistic missile uh, shot a distance farther than the distance between North Korea and Guam, a protectorate that country, has threatened several times. Uh, now, Senator Cardin, great to speak with you. I look at the president's schedule today, your colleague on the Senate Formulations Relations Committee. Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee is going to be meeting with the president today. Uh, I wonder if you have any insight into what the two of them will be talking about and if you could tell us a bit about the kind of interface you've had with this administration on issues like these thus far.
3: Well, first of all, good morning. And uh, I'm certain that Senator Corker will be talking about North Korea as one of the subjects on the agenda with the president. Uh, we've I've had uh, discussions with members of the Trump administration on North Korea and other issues. But clearly, this most recent test confirms the fact that North Korea not only has the uh, nuclear weapon, but they are developing the means in which it could be delivered, um, not just in the region, but beyond the region. So it's a uh, Matter of it's extremely dangerous and it's a it's an urgent issue for the United States to to uh, change its game plan from the point of view of I believe starting a diplomatic surge working with China that changed the equation.
1: As you watch all of these tests and I think there have been thirteen or fourteen of them this year uh, alone, do you regard them as tests as North Korea trying out uh, or, or showcasing technology they've developed, or are these simply provocations to you? How do you view them?
3: I believe that they want to have a functional uh, nuclear arsenal that is capable of uh, uh, reaching uh, the U.S. and our allies. Uh, They look at this as an ability to prevent the United States from uh, affecting their regime but you never know how these weapons could be used it's a it's, it's a regime that's unpredictable it violates international law so our objective is to prevent north korea from destabilizing the region in our our interest and that means freezing and hopefully eliminating their nuclear weapon program
0: senator cardin good morning i i think maryland is possibly the most misunderstood state in the country cumberland maryland 138 miles away from your baltimore went 70%-plus vote for uh, President Trump. When you travel out to Western Maryland, what do you see as the reaction to the follies of your Washington over the last two, 300 uh, days? What's the response? You as a diehard Baltimore Democrat, what do you see in Republican Maryland?
3: Well, you know, Maryland is called America in miniature. We have yes. the, the mountains of western Maryland. We have the the beaches of Eastern Shore. Uh, clearly, the western part of our state is more politically conservative than either the Baltimore or Washington regions, which is uh, much more progressive. Uh, it's uh, the western part is traditional uh, conservative areas of our state. Uh, they're good people. Have they wavered? Uh, have they
0: wavered on the president? Have they wavered on the president?
3: I think if you if you if you deal with the issues, uh, they're certainly disagreeing with a lot of the policies that have been proposed by the Trump administration, and they are certainly against a lot of the language the president has used. Uh, whether that would translate into uh, uh, votes that would. But against the president, I I don't know. But I I do believe there is disagreement with the manner in which the president is conducting his affairs.
1: Senator Cardin, you're going to get through the weekend. On Tuesday of next week, there's a a nominations hearing before the Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee. The Honorable John Huntsman is going to be sitting down taking questions from you and your colleagues. He, of course, nominated to be the next ambassador uh, to Russia. How much is is his nomination – Uh, clouded by the 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 scandal involving Russian interference in the US presidential election and what questions do you have for him about uh, how he's gonna move forward if in fact he's confirmed
3: Well, Mr. Huntsman is is well-qualified to be ambassador to Russia. He is a person who is well-respected by both Democrats and Republicans. I'm pleased that he's willing to allow his name to come forward. My guess is that the confirmation hearing is going to focus more about our challenges with Russia than the qualifications of Mr. Huntsman. Uh, The the, the U.S.-Russia relationship is extremely important, and it is very challenged
1: today. I bring, I bring up that nomination. That's a high level one uh, for a big ambassadorship. When, when you look at the names the, the White House is putting forward, uh, how worried are you about how few of them you've seen uh, thus far? Uh, are you getting any indication here that the White House is going to be moving faster to fill some of the vacant positions that still exist uh, in Foggy Bottom?
3: I am extremely concerned by the slow pace of filling critical positions at the State Department. I'm not alone. Democrats and Republicans have voiced our concern. we well, just talking about North Korea. We don't have an assistant secretary for that region. So we don't have the people in place that can give a clear direction to U.S. policy in so many parts of the world. So it's not just our ambassadors in, in, in important countries. It's key positions within the State Department that are political appointments, yeah. subject to confirmation by the Senate that haven't been filled.
0: It's Friday, so I'm allowed to do gossip, Senator yeah. Cardin. <laughs> um, I, you know, I'm absolutely fascinated by who's sitting on the couch in the Oval Office. Do the Democrats have the back of uh, Senator Schumer and Speaker Pelosi? Do they have the support of not common sense Democrats like Cardin of Maryland, but the other rabble? Are they in support of the two?
3: Oh, absolutely. We very much want our political system to work, and the only way it's going to work is with Democrats and Republicans all being involved. So we uh, applaud our leaders' willingness to sit down mm-hmm. with President Trump and to work out uh, solutions. The, the, the DACA children, we need to protect the Dreamers, and uh, it's one its one of our highest priorities among the Democratic right. caucus. We were pleased to see that we didn't have a default on our government debt. We want right. to see a let to to keep government open. So, look, we were disappointed by the election, but we wanted to make sure that our system works and Democrats need to be part of the process.
0: Senator, I was medicated coming in this morning because I had to watch (laughs) Orioles baseball last night. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. Would you guys do like a public grant to help Mr. Showalter out? Man, he can't (laughs) hit the ball. It's a come on. When does this turn around for the dreaded Baltimore Orioles?
3: Well, you know, we've had ups and downs during the season. There's been some stretches that we, we thought we were going to be the world champions. And we're not giving up hope yet. We're still in the, the pennant chase. And, uh, yeah. But it's, uh, it's been a very yeah. disappointing two weeks, no question about it. And it, uh, We love our Orioles. We just wish they were flying a yeah. little
0: higher. They play in the most gorgeous modern ballpark. Senator Cardin, thank you so much. Senator for the Baltimore Orioles. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Great to speak with him again. The ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, incredibly Mary- timely interview. Grateful to have him yeah. taking the time on this busy Friday morning to talk to us uh, about North Korea in particular.
0: David, they're those states, like I think of Georgia North South, that span geography. Maryland is remarkable over a short distance from the West on Sirius XM to Baltimore, 99.1 FM, Baltimore, Washington. This is Bloomberg. had one solitary guest this hour <laughs> and he brought an entourage with him why did not you attempt an introduction david yeah
1: Curry? i'm gonna i'm gonna run down the list here we got mark lastry with us uh, jb don and wes edens uh, as well here in our bloomberg 1130 studios uh, in new york and uh, i don't know who to begin with you let's let's start with wes <laughs> if we could tom and i'll let you follow up from here let me just get your your sense of sort of where things stand from an investment perspective right now, where there's the greatest opportunity as, as you see it, and, and uh, just to maybe outline, if you could, some of the challenges of, of being an investor right now. Uh, well, good morning. Thanks
4: for having us. You know, the uh, I think the environment right now from an investment standpoint is pretty tough. You know, you've had a long period of very low interest rates, and you've got pretty good, gro- good growth in the U.S., notwithstanding kind of lots of challenges, but uh, there's not a lot that is obviously cheap, you know, so it's a... Uh, it's a time to pay attention to what you're doing.
0: This is a four-hour interview, That's right? We got three guys in the <laughs> studio. I, I, go, can I get in here, David? Mark Lassie, I've been dying to talk to you about the follies of Washington. How did you enter America? Were you like on a? You didn't go through Ellis Island, right? No, I did through JFK?
5: Probably, yeah, JFK. I,
0: I mean, what do you think? I mean, you're Moroccan. You, you come into the country. You're the definition of success of immigrants. What do you think of what's going on in Washington with DACA and with the debate over rich or poor immigration and the rest?
5: Look, I think, I mean, for me, it's probably a little bit more sensitive. But I think at the end of the day, you know, this country was made on immigrants. And... What's going on today is a bit ridiculous over all this stuff. So, you know, you would hope that people would be able to solve this issue on DACA. You
0: came out of one of the coolest schools on the East Coast, Clark University. Would you have to go back home now? I mean, I I guess you were in the U.S. then, but think of the immigrants that are going through top flight engineering schools. And am I right? They got to go home now?
5: Well, they do. I mean, uh, good news is I got naturalized. So I guess for me, it's okay. But ultimately, at the end of the day, yeah. for all these people who are at school, they'd have to return.
1: Jamie, Dine, let, me, let me turn to you. We have a wide-ranging conversation here. Obviously, the, they thought the this three, was on basketball. It was going to be on basketball. <laughs> yeah. Well, let, let's go there if we could. And, and, and this is something of particular fascination. For me. We, we've, we've seen the sale here of the, the Houston Rockets recently for, for an extraordinary sum of, of money. Help us understand how you value a basketball team. You are here, the three of you, investors, owners of, of, of a big NBA franchise, what does it? What does a sale like that mean for how you 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 assign a, a value to to an NBA franchise? Jamie, sorry.
6: Oh, me. Uh, yeah,
1: others uh, <laughs> uh, uh, chime well, in. Uh, <laughs> well, bl- I
6: think we're, we're blocked lucky. by He's giant monitors saying. as well. Um, yeah, we can get flooded. Um, no, you know it's you know what's at the at the end of the day, what's really happening is is really um, a few things. One is the modern NBA game is probably. As exciting, if not the most exciting, I think, sports thing to watch. And as a result, viewers are watching it. Kids are watching it. Millennials are watching it. The world is watching it. I think it's probably, you know, the most popular, you know, big type, you know, uh, sport like in China, for example. And after soccer, it's the number two sport in the world. And that's that's really number one. And as you look at what's happening with money for sports, Okay, money for entertainment. It's really live sports that basically is the one thing you cannot watch the next day. Don't want to watch the next day. You don't, you know, want to basically deal with the so-called court cutting risk. You have to watch it, you know, live. Yeah. So there's real value there. And then lastly, quite frankly, is I think there's a lot of people who love these, you know, uh, teams. You know, I, I would say. Of all my investments I've ever done, and I think Mark and Wes would agree, this is by far the most fun investment we've ever. You done. had more
0: fun at DLJ a few years ago, right? That was a long time ago. That was a long time <laughs> hey. ago. Wes, Eatons, <laughs> Mark Lassery, and Jamie dining with us. I want you know we're going to mix it up. We could, yeah. literally, folks, we could go worldwide here for four hours with these three guys. <laughs> They've got such great experience and individual and distinct experience. Jamie, let me start with you. You were in the DLJ Orange Book years ago, right? Elliot Platt would write the Maroon Book for DLJ on <laughs> fixed income. and you had the whole thing going. Can you tell a kid today to go into Global Wall Street, given uh, method two, given the battle over research? Can you tell some kid coming out of Pennsylvania like you did, can you tell him to go into finance, be like Mark Lassery?
6: Uh, Absolutely, if it is your passion. Okay, I remember when I went into Wall Street and it was 1981, my first job paid me $22,000 a year. It was a decent salary but it wasn't like you know the kind of numbers you're hearing about today and i went because i was passionate about it. i actually wanted to do it if this is a career that you're passionate about you really want to do you should do it i think it's still a good career okay if, if you're going to get rich i wouldn't do that if you're going to because you want to make something that you're actually going to enjoy doing and actually do well absolutely
1: Let me ask you about infrastructure in particular. We came out of the election, headed into inauguration with a lot of talk about there being a big infrastructure spending package, there being a renewed policy focus on infrastructure uh, in this country. I know this is something you're uh, keenly interested in uh, as an investor. Are you convinced we're going to see something? How essential is it uh, in your estimation that that we get Washington to play some sort of catalytic role here, to to provide some sort of package that's going to renew focus on infrastructure in this country?
4: I think it's critical. You
1: know, I think that the returns
4: on infrastructure are, you know, multiplier effects. I think when you have great infrastructure, it actually is the kind of bedrock of a lot of economic activity, so it's really important, and there's lots and lots of need for it in the country. Um, I think there will be something out of Washington, hopefully by the end of the year or the first part of next year, and uh, I don't know what they're going to say and how effective it's going to be, but I think it's desperately needed.
1: What's the... I mean, what what could be most effective? Uh, you know, I've listened to the president. He talked about this, and you, you see it sort of ebb and flow. What he focuses on, and, and he's talked about infrastructure. Some he was out in Ohio talking about it, and the the merits of more public private partnerships. Is there a policy tool or something in particular that you think would be more effective than others uh, at at boosting investment in infrastructure?
4: Yeah, I think I think it's very very clear. I think that the uh, the essential um, thing to to provide is uh, a mechanism for private capital to fund a lot of it. And so – and then really the missing link in the capital structure for a lot of this is debt. So I think the government mm. can be a debt provider, not cost the government a lot of money. And I think they can then enable a lot of private mm. and direct investment. And I think that you could really see a tremendous boom in it. And
0: to the three – of you, and jump in here if you want. We just got off the phone with Hugh Henry, of Scotland over in England. He's shutting down his hedge fund uh, today. And I made a key distinction here. He didn't blow up. A lot of people blow up. We all blow up. I've made mistakes. Everybody else has made mistakes. The three of you, I'm sure, have your war stories as well. He was killed by just dampened volatility. You know, he's down 9% this year. Fine. But all the rest of the returns was just the single-digitness. Mark Lassery, to begin with you, is that where we are now, is perpetual single-digitness? Or can we actually get back to making alpha within the industry?
5: Look, it's hard. I mean, the biggest issue that's out there today is pretty simple. The risk-free rate is sort of zero. Yeah. Right? So, you know, when if you just look at 10 years ago, 10 years ago, the risk-free rate, if you left your money in the bank, was 4%. So if you did four or five times the risk-free rate, you were fine. You were at 20. Here today, you do four times or five times the risk-free rate. Let's just say it's 10 bips. You're making 50 bips. So you're taking a lot more risk. It's what Wes said. I mean, it's just you're in a much, much harder environment. And because of that, you're taking a lot more risk, and you're going to end up having, in my opinion, fewer and fewer people who do what we do, um, because you know people aren't going to tolerate the lower returns.
0: Wes, quickly, is this dampening because of central bank policy? Is it as simple as that? I asked the same question to Hugh. Let me I
4: asked you. I think if you had to pick one thing, you'd say, yeah. I mean, I think that it really keeping rates low as they have been, as long as they have been, while it might have been a great idea you know, in the middle of the financial crisis, the financial crisis has been over for a long time. And I think that's a real challenge. It really is. And this low rate that Mark talks about, that actually is what drives then all other related returns.
1: And that's what makes the challenges, I think. Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. David Gurra and Tom Keene in New York here with uh, a packed house in our Bloomberg 11302. Mark got Lange, seat back. You got your seat back, Tom. Yeah. You should take it away. Go, go for it here. A uh, packed house here with some questions. so
0: many things to speak of, but I, I think it would be unfair to speak to Mr. Dine and Mr. Lassery and Mr. Edens. And not speak about basketball and television. In that we're, we're all fixated by Cleveland and Boston and this and that and the stories on the West Coast. I guess there's a team, David, on the West Coast that's pretty good. I can't remember. But but is the, is the gravy train going to continue? That thing is one of you three the TV expert of the three at West.
4: Yeah. Uh, is
0: the is the party going to continue for you? That is TV sports.
4: Well, it, it's uh, live sports is. Um... Is very very valuable, right? It's it's what everyone wants to watch, and even the the cable cutting and whatnot, you still want to watch live sports. Now, the old media companies I think are struggling, and the new media companies are in the in the rise. So I think um, the answer is that the the content very valuable, going to continue to be valuable, more valuable perhaps. The nature of how it's distributed I think could change a lot in the well, next five. It years. will
0: change in distribution, but will it port over? To the Facebooks, the Twitters, the Googles. I don't understand how I watch the Bucks on a little itty bitty computer screen like you do on the big 4K Sony. I mean, I just I can't get there. Help me get
4: there. You might be a little too old. <laughs> it's conceivable. <laughs> it's uh, I think that people consume. Oh, you think
0: that's the, funny, uh, girl? Uh, yeah.
4: I, I think I think people can I think people consume the sports in a lot of different ways. And I think what's going to happen though is that unquestionably it's going to be distributed many different ways. You know, the you saw the big announcement from. Uh, you know, Disney on the streaming, you know, uh, product. And it, we haven't really figured out how to monetize it properly as an industry, but it's coming. And it's coming
1: fast. Uh, Mark Lashley, let me just ask you about uh, your audience, the, the Bucks' audience right now. Uh, obviously incredibly important to that city itself. But but how cognizant are you, how cognizant are all three of you about the, the national, the international reputation of uh, of the brand? What's the the focus there? Well. I-
5: I I actually think we're America's team. I mean, I think if you forget about everybody else, uh, if you look at— I thought the Knicks were. I know, but it's not the Knicks. (laughs) We're. No, I think because of Giannis and a number of the other players that we have, um, it is an international team, right? And because of that, you could be anywhere. My daughter was on her honeymoon in Greece, and she was wearing a Milwaukee Bucks T-shirt, and everybody just keeps running up to her— why are you a fan of Giannis and you know, she was like yeah I would love Giannis I mean it's I think wherever you are um, especially for our team and where you've got international players I think it's huge
1: How about uh, the issue of, of, of legalized gambling I don't know who would take a bite out of this but Adam Silver talks about the need to have a, a better mechanism in place for that uh, Mark I'll have you take a bite of it if you want and, and y'all can jump in if you want do you think that's going to happen is there—is there a lot of money to unlock there do you think we're going to get some sort of legal legalized system within the the context of the nba for for legalized gambling
5: you know look my view is you should have it i mean it happens so um we can stop making believe it doesn't happen and i think adam's right i think sooner or later it will end up becoming legal and once it does i i don't know what ultimately happens but i'm sure um as people are betting um, there will be ways for people Formalized. to figure out. Yeah,
0: yeah you know. I, I don't pretend to be an expert, but you went inside. Is this right for the GM, the new GM? You had one guy go to Orlando, and you tell me about that decision. I mean, the pressure to to, to spend huge money to go outside. Why did the Bucks stay internal to pick up the guy that's got to keep the egos in check?
4: Well, we ran a very robust process to look at a lot of people, and in the end, we concluded the yeah, David, that...
0: David, did they call you? They can call you. <laughs> it wasn't quite that robust. No, not that robust, mean, But yeah. uh, we, we
4: ran a very robust process. <laughs> we talked to a lot of people. And we concluded at the end that the guy that worked the workforce was the best candidate. Mm-hmm. So it was that simple, and we're very happy with them. But big decision.
1: Mark, just to, uh, circling back to something Tom asked you about a few moments ago, that being hedge funds. We had this conversation with Hugh Henry just a little while while ago, and what we didn't talk about uh, was fees. And, and he said he's thrown in the towel, not not uh, uh, not going out with the you know, disappointedly. Um, is, is the conversation about fees an ancillary conversation? He said that we we're seeing the end of a global macro moment. Um, how much readjustment has to happen with fees and hedge funds, and is that going to be something that saves hedge funds here going forward?
5: Look, I I don't think people mind paying fees, to be perfectly blunt, if you're giving them the returns. Right? At the end of the day, what gets people upset is if you're charging them two and twenty and you're flat or you're up one or you're up five. Right? It's the two or, and or tw- down tw- ten. Or, or <laughs> down ten, yes. <laughs> That's what gets people upset. Yeah. It's not so mm. fees become a big part when you sort of look at it and say, all right. The ten year, which is a little bit of what Wes said, sure. if the safest investment is a treasury and a ten year is two percent and you're charging somebody two oh. percent, um, that's kind of tough. You know, it's it's just math. I mean ultimately at the end of the it comes day. Down to that. Yeah, that's all it is.
0: We just got forty seconds. If Jamie Don. let's go back to the acclaimed Elliot Platt of Donaldson Lufkin Jen of a few years ago. He never had to deal with negative right, rates. Just a few How do the three <laughs> of you survive? When you got a German two-year down negative 70 beeps and a Swiss 20-year at, I can't remember what it is, 15 plus. Just quickly here, when
6: do the negative rates ballet end? Uh, well, that we don't know. But my guess is ultimately it has to end. This is not normal. But I think, you know, we've all survived by finding idiosyncratic opportunities. Okay. Just because markets, and markets really globally, particularly risk asset okay. markets, are fully priced. You can still find opportunities okay. in fully priced markets. Jamie
0: Diamond, Wes Edens, Mark Lazary. thank you so much. This is Bloomberg.
1: Follow the news out of the Korean Peninsula. The U.N. Security Council is scheduled to meet at 3 o'clock this afternoon here in New York to discuss the situation there as Secretary of State Rex Tillerson calls for more action against that rogue regime. Our next guest, without question, the interview of the show, Ambassador Christopher Hill joins us now on our phone lines. A distinguished career in public service in the government. He was most recently U.S. Ambassador to Iraq. Now he's the dean, as I said, of the Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver I should note he was an ambassador to the Republic of Korea as well and a participant in the six-party talks on the North Korean nuclear uh, issue. Ambassador Hill, great to have you with us uh, today. And uh, uh, the the word of the day is inured. We've seen so many of these tests over the course of the year. Uh, Is each one different? What was different about the one that happened last night?
0: Well, at
7: a certain point, you have to ask, you know, why are they testing as, uh, every week or so? Because clearly, it's it's more than just, uh, you know, to check the flight path. And I think uh, what they're really doing, it's kind of an in-your-face move. They're trying to say, first of all, we're in full production with these things, so clearly, uh, they don't have to hand-make them every test. I mean, they've got some production line. And secondly, I think they're trying to make the point that we are a full-fledged uh, uh, nuclear power, and uh, you're just going to have to deal deal with us as such, and the more we send up these missiles, the more the reality, in their view, will sink in. My own view is we cannot accept them as a nuclear power win. We certainly cannot accept a situation where a country points... uh, possibly nuclear-tipped missiles at us, and uh, we're going to have to step up our game.
1: You've lived this. You've watched the deliberations of the the UN Security Council. We certainly saw some heated ones on Monday. The U.S. ambassador to the UN, Nikki Haley, wanted more severe sanctions yet placed on North Korea with regard to oil. That didn't happen because of China in particular. What do you think is going to happen next? I'm going to steal a question that Tom asked a little earlier on the show. That is, what more can the UN do at this point?
7: Well, I think clearly the Chinese are going to have to do more. I mean, it's not enough to say they're against it and and sort of go along with these uh, limited uh, sanctions. They've really got to go the go the full distance. North Korea does not have refining uh, capacity, and so uh, I mean it's amazing they have nuclear uh, facilities but not an oil refinery. Uh, So I think China really needs to look at this critical issue of gasoline. But looking beyond that, I think the U.S. and China really need to look at what going to do about this, and it's more than sanctions, because the sanctions train just moves too slowly compared to the nuclearization train, and so I think we do need to look at some options, and I I think we need to make China understand that uh, we're going to have no choice but to uh, go forward.
1: To, to borrow a line from, from the musical Hamilton, you've been in the room where it happens. You, you were part of these six-party talks on North Korea. Uh, very few pe- people have been engaged in direct diplomacy with, with the North Korean regime. What's that like, and is it likely to be different now? If, if at some point in the near future we see uh, all these parties returning to talk to each other <clears throat> one again, what are the particular complexities of dealing diplomatically with North Korea?
7: Well, first of all, uh, these people are not stupid. They're not robots. They're not just reading from talking points. Uh, They're making their case. Uh, so, you know, you're up against people who know what they're talking about. But I think it's important to understand that when you talk to these negotiators, you're basically talking to the note-taker because the note-taker is going to take the message back to Pyongyang. And we've not really had any kind of uh, capacity to take a message to, uh, to Py- Pyongyang. I want to emphasize, however, that the North Koreans have shown no interest, zero interest, in, a, uh, in uh, getting back to the original purpose of these talks, which was denuclearization. Right. Said that they've talked about the need to have kind of some kind of limits, and I don't think we should go that way. I think we should really press the Chinese. And work together with China on
0: this. If you're just joining us, folks, Christopher Hill with us. As David and I both agree, this is without question the interview of the day for Bloomberg Surveillance. Ambassador Hill, I want to go through a little bit of the path here from Moses Brown in Providence to Bowdoin, to your continued public service as ambassadors to different areas. Your work critically in Kosovo and then on to Eastern Europe and Poland, and then your expertise on Asia. You more than Anyone we speak to understands the trenches of the State Department. How destroyed is the State Department from the actions of the president with Secretary Tillerson?
7: Well, to put it gently, I think there's a problem. Uh, Diplomacy does, after all, need some diplomats, and it's worrisome to see uh, many of the better ones, uh, some of the best ones, uh, leaving. I think Secretary Tillerson has really tried to address some of the main issues, but it's a bit of a team sport, and I don't think the Secretary of State can do it alone. And I think uh, he needs to understand the secretary, the role of the Secretary of State should be someone who comes in the ninth inning and shuts down a problem, rather than shows up in the third inning and encourages uh, parties to keep on talking or something. So I think there's a kind of a failure to understand the sort of. Uh, uh, technology of it all, of how why you have uh, uh, lower-ranked mm-hmm. people, why you have middle-ranked people. And I think there's a, a failure to understand that these are career people who have a heck of a lot to offer. They're, you know, when Secretary Tillerson showed up at the State Department in February, there wasn't one person there at the uh, C Street entrance who wanted anything but full success for for him. And instead, he's gotten involved in this issue of reforming the State Department. Look, that's a good idea. I think everything needs to be uh, reformed. but my goodness, we have far more, uh, um, you know, urgent matters out there in the world than having some uh, accounting firm look at how the State Department is organized.
0: Okay. We're going we've got all sorts of news, Ambassador, One more question, if I could. One of the few things you have and I have in common. Uh, besides the view of the athletic fields of Moses Brown, is is we, we really are concerned about Aaron Judge. The ball he hit last night for the New York Yankees in, in, in Fenway Park, Chris, it would have gone over the turnpike, probably would have landed across the Charles River. What are the Red Sox going to do about the surging, dreaded New York Yankees?
7: Uh, I think they need to pitch him high and away. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, make him bite on sliders as well. I mean, I'm not really sure, but you're absolutely right. We've got to deal with that problem.
0: It is a true national problem. Yeah. Chris Hill, thank <laughs> you. Thank you so much. We look forward to seeing you in our Washington and New York studios. Yes. He's now, David, is this correct, with the University of Denver? He's right? at
1: the University of Denver, yeah. heading up the uh, the uh, Corbell School of International Studies there, uh, a, he, a fine and growing program there, and uh, always incredibly great to talk to him about this issue uh, in particular. And uh, we've talked about the Middle East uh, as well. A- a wide he has
0: legendary stories of wearing Red Sox, carrying the Red Sox flag across all of Asia. Like he's been known to go into meetings with with swag and
1: I love gifts. That. It reminds me of Megan Green with her yes. Red Sox socks that she yes. will. Tell, tell our audience,
0: David. <laughs> the time we've got left, we're waiting for some things to happen here. Our team is working on it right now. David, why when when we say that's the most important interview of the day to me? It's the guy's experience. He's in the trenches. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think what I want to highlight again, and I did it in the question to him there about about diplomacy, is that uh, he lived this as the ambassador to uh, to South Korea, and then as a part of those talks, uh, you know, many years ago. Now, uh, we were engaging with North Korea diplomatically with a few other countries uh, in the region. Uh, I think it's just extraordinary to think about how few people have been. Uh, in a boardroom, seated around a table, having occasion to uh, exchange words with representatives of the Mm -hmm. North Korean government. Ambassador Christopher Hill, as you said, at the University of Denver, uh, one of those few.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.